Uh, welcome to the Vineyard. I am Jeremy. I'm the senior pastor here. I'm really glad you're here. Really want to welcome you and, and um, just really excited to see everyone here today. So we are, we have been in this series for a whole week <laughs> called, uh, a, a, of the story of Esther. And so it's a three-part series and, and uh, today we're, we're, we're in part two and next week we wrap it up. And it's, it's a series I'm really excited about. Something you're going to notice if you haven't over this last year is that you know, we jump between Old Testament and New Testament quite a bit because even though there's kind of this natural division, it's actually really still one story. It all ties together, and it's something that God has for us, even from the story from 4,000 years ago. And so uh, I'm really excited to, as, we, as we continue in, in this series. And so we're going to look at another part of the story of Esther today and, and see how it translates to our lives. We're going to address a big topic, fear, through the lens of this story. Now, fear is one of those big topics, right? I mean, we can talk about that a lot. Scripture talks about it so much. I mean, one of the mo- it talks about that as one of the most things and anything else. Um, and, uh, but we're going to look at a specific fear today, and we're going to look at how we can find freedom from that particular fear and, and, and what God has for us in that. And uh, and finally, we're going to be examining how this story can shift our perspective and help us walk with courage today and onward. Now, I need to clarify something from last week that uh, was brought to my attention. Um, so I was talking about Xerxes. So, you know, the story it, uh, takes place in, in the Persian Empire during the reign of King Xerxes. And I mentioned that it's not the same Xerxes as the movie 300, right? You remember that? So it's... The characters aren't the same, but it's actually the same historical figure. But as you learn when you read Esther, their characters are, are, are very different. And so I just want to bring some clarity there. Thanks. All right. So as we move forward, I want to look at another, the next major section of the story. Before we get into that, though, we need to look, get some background on two of the major characters. These characters are Mordecai and Haman. Okay? So Mordecai didn't really like Haman. And uh, we're going to get into the relationship a little bit next week when, when Lauren teaches, teaches. But suffice to say, they were not friends. And so we get to this part of the story where Haman gets promoted to like the chief noble. So we're in a monarchy, right? Not just a monarchy, we're in like in this vast empire. So there's this huge royal court. And this guy Haman gets raised up to like the highest level of all the royal uh, cabinet. And so as he gets promoted to that, to, to that place, he asks the king to set up an order to where every time he walks by, people have to bow down before him. It's, it's a little much, <laughs> right? And so, but as he starts walking by and, and Mordecai is hanging out, Mordecai doesn't bow, um, for any number of reasons, there's a lot of speculation as to why he doesn't bow, but he just doesn't. They don't like each other. It, it, it just, he just doesn't bow. And so this really enrages Haman. And he has a complete overreaction to this whole thing. You ever, like, said something and someone just, like, had just the biggest overreaction? This tops that. Okay, chapter 3, verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. He was enraged. Yet having, learning, have lear- yet, having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. 
Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. So he's angry, and he's like, I need to come up with a plan to kill Mordecai. Matter of fact, I need to come up with a plan to kill everyone who's like Mordecai. So this is what he does. In verse 8, he goes to King Xerxes. He says, there's a certain people dispersed among the peoples and all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of everyone else, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to, to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. Like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> not only does he go and, and, and try to, like, get this order passed to, to destroy all Jewish people within the empire, he's going to pay for it out of his own pocket. Like 10,000, I didn't do the math this week. I ran out of, I ran out of my research time. But what I do know is that 10,000 talents is a lot, a lot of money. It is, an ex- it is an extreme amount of money. And so the king approves this action. What's, what's interesting here to see is how he uses it to justify this. He is a, they're different. So let's kill them all. Right? Like that, that's what he uses to like justify murdering an entire people group. And it's interesting because we actually still use that reasoning today in our culture. Now, not maybe murdering an entire people group, but actually doing other things, right? Hey, they're different, so we should do this to them. Or they, they, they do this differently, so we have to do that. Like, it happens everywhere. You just got to observe it. And so we see this completely disproportionate response. And so some historical context is required here. You see, because there's some ancestral enmity between Mordecai and Haman. See, Ammon is, is an Amalekite, okay, and Mordecai is obviously a Jew. The Amalekites and the Jews hate each other, like a deep hatred of each other. I mean, you thought Romeo and Juliet's families had some issues. Like, this was bad. Like, this hate went for generation upon generation. And so once Haman found out that Mordecai was Jewish, he just went nuclear, and that's where we see that. Like, he went from, oh, I'm going to kill this guy because I can't. And you know what? No, I'm going to kill the whole, the whole ethnic group. And so while his response is absolutely ridiculous, it's not too far of a stretch to see why someone with his power and influence would go this far because, I mean, he grew up being taught and trained to hate all Jews. So at this point, word gets out about the order. And the Jews are in distress, and Mordecai gets word to Esther, asking her to intervene. And so this is Esther's response. So, like, so Mordecai's like, hey, and in case you missed last week, it's, it's, her co- it's his cousin. She's the queen. She's like the chief wife of, 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 of the king. And she's like, hey, you have to go do something. All of us are going to be killed. Now, if you remember from last week, Esther never revealed her ethnic identity in the whole process of her, of her being selected queen. She kept that hidden. And that's why I said it's a really important part of the story, um, because she kept that hidden. And so let's go to to her response when Mordecai asked her to intervene. Uh, Verse verse 9. 
Pathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches a king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. So within the story, Hathak was a, a trusted eunuch between Mordecai and Esther, someone that they can trust to send messages because, you know, they couldn't text. So um, Mordecai asked her to intervene, and she refuses because if she sees the king without being summoned, she, she could be killed. Now, I mean, part of it sounds like, man, this dude Xerxes is a real jerk. And, I mean, while that's true, um, looking at the, like, the, the, the context of the time and kind of kings of that period, it was actually pretty normal to have that kind of thing in place. And so her fear here is very legitimate and, and, and very real. Like, if she went without being summoned, even being his wife and the queen, she could be killed. So it's a toss-up, right? It's important to put ourselves in Esther's shoes, though, because she's an orphan. She's part of an oppressed minority. She finally makes it and doesn't want to lose it all. And it's easy to judge someone for, for an action thinking we would do the brave thing, but we don't actually know what we would do until we got there. Mordecai doesn't judge her, though. His response is often used as kind of the pinnacle of this story, and, 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 and it's his response that's often used by Christians a lot. And so I want to look at that response and, 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 and kind of go a little bit further with it. And so here's his response. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent, he's, he sent back this answer. Don't think that because you're in the king's house, you're, you alone of all Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. So th there's a lot happening here, but the core of it is this. Mordecai plays out an argument and says this, th that's basically like, hey, yes, you might be killed. But to stay silent is actually worse than that. And either way, no matter what happens, it's worth the risk. And then he goes from that argument and turns to encouragement. And he says, maybe everything that's happened in your life, everything that's happened to you, is for this reason right here. It's for a time such as this. Have you felt like you've heard that line before in a movie? Everything in this moment brought me to this place. Probably one of the Avengers movies, right? They stole that from Esther. This line has been here for a while. So then something happens with Esther. A shift takes place in our heart between verses that we can't see, but the result is the proof. She gets up, and this is her reply. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. 
So something interesting is happening. Now Esther's stepping up. She's taking responsibility. She's putting herself in the line of fire, and now she's giving the orders. And Mordecai's like, okay, here we go. <laughs> right? Like there's something has changed in this moment. And so she asks, she tells Mordecai to ask the entire community in the capital city, which is what Susa is, say, hey, everyone here, get everyone here to, to, to fast and pray. And so I, w- I want to talk about fasting a little bit. So traditionally, within, within, within the scripture tradition, a fast is you usually fast a type of food for a period of time, for like an extended period of time, or all food and drink for an entire day. And uh, it's a spiritual practice that's designed to help us bring wholeness in our souls. It's, it's designed to help us give us strength or wisdom and or to see God in, in a special way. Like we have, a, we have something unique happening and we need like special guidance and so we, we seek God on that. So there's actually more to it, but that's just like the best two-sentence summary I can give right now. But what happens though? As we fast, we start to miss something. And so that absence highlights an area of weakness or frailty in another part of our life. And that's one of the purposes of it. And, and we can bring that to God, and he responds to that frailty. Another thing that happens is that as we fast, it brings humility. Like, because we see our weaknesses, and we're like, it, it, it humbles us. And as we approach God with that humility, the physical needs actually begin to fade, and, and our spiritual needs are met in the midst of it. So there's something special that happens when we fast. And that's why I want, to part, I want us to participate in this 40-day 40, 40 fast, you know, next weekend, because there's something that can special that can happen with us and with the community. And so whether it's a type of food or some other physical need, you're going to find a new reality and, and a stronger faith and, and, and a deeper connection with Jesus. And uh, this has been my experience as I fasted various types of things. And look, it's uncomfortable at first and second, sometimes too. But it's always been worth it. It always has been. So back to the story. They, they fast for three days. And then after that three days, Esther, with just poise and tact and wisdom, is able to convince the king to let up on this order. And if you read that part of the story, it's actually really amazing. Because one, like as she, as she fasts, it, it, like, it gives her the wisdom that she needs to actually take this approach. Like, because she actually does it in a way that you not expect if, if, when you read the story. And it's really cool. You're like, wait, how did you do that? Why did you do that? And so I think it'll be fun if you, if you read that part of the story. The other thing is that it gave her favor. Like, here she goes. She's walking up to the king. And she knows at this moment it can go one way or the other. And she has favor. And he, he, he accepts her in that moment and decides not to, to, to have her killed. And so I think there's another element of, when, you know, of, of, of that fasting that not just gives us wisdom, but also favor. So last week, as we were looking at the story, we discovered the theme of God's presence even in his absence. The theme that we pull from the same story today is dealing with the tension of risk and fear. See, fear can often lead to shame, especially if the fear comes about from something we're supposed to do and we don't do it, like shame results. And it's, and it's, and it's very difficult to push through fear if, if we're addressing it from a point of shame. Like shame just rarely works 
with anything in the long term, especially with fear. Uh, Mordecai here doesn't shame Esther for being afraid. He pushes her. He encourages her. He actually looks out for her. He says, it won't help you survive, right? He's actually looking out for her, so he's not shaming her. Also, the, the fear here is it's pretty understandable, right? Like the, way, the reason why she was so afraid. You know, as I've talked with people about like natural disasters and just kind of working in natural disaster situations, I've told them, I've said, I've noticed two things in, in, in natural disaster scenarios. One, it brings out the best in people. Two, it brings out the worst in people. Because there is nothing like that fear in the middle of disaster where people are just are trying to survive, and I've just seen them do some awful things. But it's out of survival. It's out, it's out of fear of just wanting to, to survive. And so it's like when you have that understanding, sometimes you kind of have to have that, have that for yourself, is that sometimes it's the fear. There's something in you that just wants to survive. And so that's why shame, is just, it doesn't help, help that. And, and that's why we don't want to come from it from a place of shame. You see, Esther resolves to push past the fear, but doesn't do it on her own. She doesn't do this fast herself. She does so in community and with those close to her, said her and her attendants. Her attendants are those who are spending the most time with her. See, dealing with anxiety in the midst of great risk to yourself can't be done on your own. It also can't be done by trying hard enough. I mean, I imagine you have tried that. I know I have, where it's like where you're dealing with fear, and you're like, well, if I just try hard enough, I know I won't be afraid. doesn't work that often. And so what, what do we do? How do we address it? Because it can be paralyzing, and, and more often than not, we find ourselves unable to move when it's purely out of our own strength. And this is why she goes on a fast. It strengthens her. That's, that's, that's the point of a spiritual practice, is that it's, not, it's no longer just our strength. We're getting strength from something much more powerful. And notice something in this part of the story is that she makes the decision, and then she goes on a fast. Okay? So she has this deep fear that she could die, right? Very real, very tangible. But she says, you know what? I'm going to do this. I'm going to push forward in this. But she still goes on the fast afterwards. So it's almost as if I know God is calling me to this and I'm going to do this, but I still have some apprehension. See, we have this idea that faith and risk means no fear. Like that they can't exist together. We have this idea that, well, I know I can do this when I remove and every single element of fear out of my life. And sometimes that's the case, but that's just not, that's like the exception and not the rule. It's like, no, sometimes we can jump out and we can jump in faith, and that fear is still there. And so I don't want us to, like, try to go around it or try to, like, pretend like it's not there, but actually push through it. Because that's actually what's going to get us through. We don't have to, like, deny it and pretend like it's not there. That doesn't actually work, because then we're just in denial, and then when it actually crushes us, then we, then we just feel more shame, and it's just like this, this cycle all over again. It's like, no. She still had that fear, which is why she knew she had to get more power. And so she did the fast, which, which helped that. And so she stepped out in risk with that still there. 
Now, looking at Mordecai's reply, it's, 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 it is common response to focus on the line, maybe you were put here for such a time as this, right? Like, that is, that is like the big line, and it's awesome. Now, many look at this from a perspective of, of my life, my life's call, and, and my life's purpose, right? That, that's kind of the, the perspective we look at it from. And there's nothing wrong with that, but I, I want to challenge that, and I want to shift that, because look at this. What happens if we continue down that line? Okay, we start thinking about, okay, I can, I can do this because it's about my, my, my life's purpose, and, 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 and I can do this, and I can jump into this. So if we continue down that line, and then we enter, and then risk enters the, 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 the equation, and it's still about my life's purpose and, and what I'm meant to do, what happens when we view risk? You see, risk endangers our self-preservation, right? And so if risk endangers our self-preservation, now we're in this tension of, oh, what I'm meant to do on my life's call and my self-preservation. And so then there's this tug and pull, right? And naturally, just kind of, I mean, when we look at it, we're going to default to our self-preservation. Like, that's just, that's just kind of what happens. Like, don't, don't feel bad about it. Like, that's just, that's, just, that's just what happens. And so what if there wasn't this tug and pull between, you know, doing my call and, and, and my self-preservation? What if that wasn't our only option? What if, we, what if we flip the script? So notice Esther's initial response, verse 14. I might be killed. I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> I might be killed. So verse 15, if I die, I die. Something happened there, right? Something happened of extreme paralyzing fear to if I die, I die. Let's do this. What was that? Yes, she was put there for that particular time, for that particular reason. But what happened was she left her story and her self-preservation and entered God's story. And that's the perspective shift we need to have is when we get out of our story and what's going on with us and actually turn around and say, okay, what's God doing right here? And how can I be a part of that? Then we're able to push through that fear. Because it's not about what happens to me. It's about what God's doing. And this is how we do it. This is how we can take the risk we need to take and walk through the fear when we move from our story into God's story. When we move from what if this happens to me or what if that happens to me to, you know, what if God's redeeming love and power just ha- happens all over that relationship, all over that community? What if God just shows up? The question changes. The scenarios change. And we're less concerned about ourselves. So what does this look like today? So very few of us are dealing with life and death situations on a day-to-day basis, such as this one, right? But we still have fear that can sometimes feel like life or death, right? So I, I equate this to, for us today, the fear of failure. So we don't always realize it, but it's one of those things that affects everyone. Failure is so tied to our identity and worth, wrongly, by the way, (laughs) that's not what it's supposed to be, but that's how it is, 
that when situations or people create a possibility of failure, those situations or people become the enemy because we don't want to fail. See, our entire context of our entire world and and our culture is, is tied to performance. Everything is tied to how well we do. Our value as a human is based on what we can do. Now, it's rarely said like that in like those explicit words, but that's basically what it is. I mean, from the moment we get into the world, that is how we evaluate it. That's how we're judged. And it's gotten to the point to where even our Christianity is tied to that. It's like your values as, 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 as a loved one of God is based on how many people you got saved today. Right? But that's not him. God doesn't value us based on those metrics. He doesn't value us based on our systems and our standards. He values us based on his love. That's one thing I, I, I remember distinctly that, like, in this time I had with me, it's like, I don't evaluate you, Jeremy, by the way that you evaluate you and that everyone else does. My basis for my love and worth of you is based on me, not you. And when we can do that, we can see freedom here. I can't tell you how many times fear of failure created inane amounts of stress in my life. Now, I couldn't tell at the time that that's what it was, right? All I could tell was that I'm super stressed, and I couldn't always make connection, but, I, but it was like, okay, well, if, 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 I, if I fail, if I, if I mess up this project, if I fail this person, if I, if I fail this client, it's over. And so that's the narrative going on in my mind the whole time. And so the whole time I'm working from a place of I cannot fail. Because if I did, I would fall apart. When I did fail, I did fall apart. Now, it shouldn't have this type of control, but it does because something deeper is happening. Failure must mean, at least the way I define it, must mean I'm rejected. And so we need the power of the Spirit to help us change this narrative, this change this story in our minds that says us that's true. You see, because when failure is tied to our worth, we're still in our story. If we can approach our journey from the perspective of God's story, our worth is defined in him, which is always worthy, no matter what. Like when we enter God's story, the answer, worthy. Value, priceless, every time. Not based on how well I did today in this thing. And when we're in God's story, no failure is the end. No failure is, is, is the end. But that's what it feels like, right? That any failure we have is fatal. That if we don't make this happen, it's over. But that's not God's idea. See, because with God, failure is only part of the journey. That's step two. <laughs> that's not the end. <laughs> It was for every single one of his followers and the people he chose to speak for him. Every prophet, every follower, failure was a part of their journey. 
Moses, who was considered the greatest prophet in the Old Testament, guess what? Big failure towards the end of his life. It's part of the journey. Don't fight the fear. Shift your perspective and walk through the fear. And look, I, I, I say this from experience. I, I, I see myself in Esther. I, I, I've let fear stop me from so many things. I've also seen when I don't let that happen. And it's just pure joy. I'm able to take risks, and it's an amazing experience. And you know why it's an amazing experience? It's because it goes beyond my experience. And I get to see what God is doing in in, in other people's lives. I, I get to be a part of that as opposed to, like, what's happening in my life. I get to be a part of what he's doing in the lives of others, what he's doing in his communities, what he's doing in his world. And there's nothing like that. There's no joy like that. And there's nothing that can replace it. And that's the thing we learn from this story. God is going to redeem his people on this earth that he loves so much with or without me. And I'd rather it be with me. I mean, that's, that's what Mordecai says. He's like, the salvation will come from the Jews from another place. So whether you do or do this, it's not going to affect us. We're going to be redeemed no matter what. God's going to move because he cares about this world, everyone in this world, way too much. And there's no shame in what I'm saying right now. I don't want you to feel that. And I, think, I think sometimes like that's what you hear. Break that right now. What I'm saying is God is, is making an invitation. Do you want to be a part of this? And when we can break free from that, that stress just fades away as we enter his story. All right, let's look at some practical tips. I think my seven seconds is up. Spend the next week identifying something you can fast during this season together. To do this, start searching for something that it seems you can't live without or something you really need. Like, that's really a good indication. As like, as you start thinking about it, it's like, man, I really need this thing right here. Like, that's really a good way to say, okay, maybe I should, like, fast that and let's see what happens. Let's see what comes from it. And so that's a good place to start. And then once you make that decision, you can go to that link and sign up so that we're doing it in community. And then I want to hear from you. Like, tell me what's going on. Tell me what's happening in your life because I believe as we do this together, something is going to happen, something good. But one thing to look at is, like, start examining as you make the decision, like, what do you do automatically without thinking? Like, what do you do, like, kind of as something that you just need out of habit, but it seems like you can't stop it, <laughs> right? That's a good place to start. And look, throughout the fast, again, it's not a test, right? Like, so we got to get that out of our head. If you like, do it a couple times in the early parts of the fast. It's not over. <laughs> no failure is fatal. Because that's what happens. Like, that's, that's how, like, the enemy works. Like, oh, you messed up. You screwed up. Oh, well, guess it's not going to work for you. Like, no. You just get back on it. And we just keep going. We got 40 days. It's a long time. Plenty of time to mess up and get back. Right? Okay, number two. 
Pick one area in your life where the fear of failure is most prevalent or where you are contemplating a risk but are uncertain about the circumstances. So I think for some of you, like, that just popped in your head right away. And you're like, no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> and for some, you're like, you're kind of, it's so much going on and you don't maybe know what that is right now. So I want you to spend some time and begin to identify that. Because sometimes we don't even realize when we're avoiding something because of fear of failure. And so we have to like sit with it for a little while and like see what that is. And so I want to encourage you to do that. And then as you recognize what that is, begin to step out of your story and shift your perspective from what's happening to you to how God has wanted to do something in you for others. Can we do that? Okay, let's stand. And so as we get ready for communion and worship, I want us to consider, I want us to reflect on a couple things and just kind of ask God to like really intervene in our lives right now. And so as we take communion, as we remember Christ in this act, ask and seek how he views you in the light of failure. So in order to confront this, first we have to acknowledge it and, and recognize that it's there. And so as we take communion, as we, as we go into this worship time, as we're reflecting, recognize how you view yourself in the light of failure, and then let's seek God and say, hey, how do you view me in, in, in the light of failure? And I think he wants to respond to that. I think that he wants to speak into that and help you experience something different. I help you experience that worth and that value. So it's one thing to know it. It's one thing to actually believe it because you've experienced it. So in this place, as we take communion, as we take that bread and the wine, look for your identity and acceptance in his love which is not based on your performance and how the cross reminds us of that. How his love and acceptance is not based on our performance. It's not based on your performance. It's based on his performance at the cross. And I want us to reflect on that and see how that can shift our hearts the way it shifted Esther's. Because we saw that shift happen and that shift is available for us today. That healing is available for us today. And so over the next couple songs, we're going to, we're going to worship and reflect and, and, and have this communion time. And some of you may be wanting, are wondering like, hey, how do I, how do, I do that? How do I, how do I walk in this? Or some of you might be thinking like, I, I want to have that type of experience with God, but I don't even know what that even looks like. I want you to come up for prayer. Our prayer team is going to come up during these next two songs. And I just want you to come up, and they'd love to pray with you and walk with you in that. And as we take communion, if you, if you are feeling compelled, something is drawing you to this experience, to this communion, I, I want you to know that it's open to you, that Jesus is open to you, and that we just want to do this together with you. Let's worship. <laughs>